Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast, Working Drummer. Today, my guest is drummer Paul Eckberg. Paul has drummed for Owsley, Daniel Bradbury, Jana Kramer, Amy Grant, Jars of Clay, Whitney Duncan, Andrew Peterson, and many other Nashville-based artists. He spends most of his time recording in Nashville. If you want to support the podcast, you can join our Patreon page at patreon.com slash working drummer. For as little as a dollar a month, you can have access to all our educational content. In recent weeks, we've been adding quite a bit of content. That includes a video from former guests like Bruce Becker. He did a video just for us. We also have a video from former guest Brian Zach, where he goes into how to improve your ride swing patterns and recent guest Mike Malone has five transcriptions of some amazing drummers and classic performances that he has made accessible to our Patreon members. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. You can find that link on our website at workingdrummer.net. So as you're here in our conversation, Paul and I met about eight years ago at an amazing studio called Sputnik Sound. They're having a Christmas party and uh, I just started the podcast, so I was meeting drummers and saying, hey, you got to check this podcast out. And when Paul and I were conversing, I just felt like, man, this guy, he's got a lot going on and he's just going to be a perfect guest to have on the show. He works a lot in the contemporary Christian music industry here in Nashville and sheds some light on this part of the industry that I'm not as familiar with. And we've had a handful of guests in this and there's always such amazing talent in this genre that spills over into you know the pop scene and rock and and modern country and everything that's being produced out of nashville and paul is no exception but he has an amazing story of his time here in nashville what he's learned and just some really important takeaways i appreciate paul it's been a long time coming and i hope that you enjoy this conversation with paul eckberg Here there's a great scene in Minneapolis. That's where I grew up. Right. So there's, uh, I was I don't think I was really in the scene, but I was nearby, and I don't know. <laughs> a friend of mine had a, had a joke that like every time we saw a limo in Minneapolis, we just assumed it was Prince. Or <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was one of my questions. Yeah. Uh, when you see a limo in Minneapolis, yeah. who who is inside? Think, yeah. uh, nine out of ten times, it was Prince. Yeah. <laughs> Well, let's talk about that, man. I okay. mean, uh, I've had an opportunity to speak with some amazing musicians yeah. in Minneapolis. And oh, yeah. so I'm curious to know, what was the experience like? I mean, how did it inform you as a musician, as a drummer? Um, you know, I never, as far as Minneapolis affecting me as a musician, again, I wasn't, I wasn't really, you know, in the scene. I, I hardly left the suburb I grew up in, which was Edina, Minnesota, Minneapolis suburb. Um, but, you know, I'd see, you know, 
I go ta- go downtown to see shows. I remember seeing one of my first concerts that I saw was like uh, Genesis. Mm-hmm. Um, that was uh, in St. Paul. This was before like arenas started branding. You know, <laughs> it's the Excel Energy Center back then. It was just like the St. Paul Civic Center. Right, right. It was that, a cool name. Yeah, and I, I mean, I listened to like I saw Rush like three times. I my brother was way into prog rock and so yeah. i was just listening to whatever my older brother was listening to right and uh the i was i was wondering why you have a 16 piece drum set you know more is this better is an, this is an audio format so i can <laughs> lie about your drum set if right neil Peart taught me anything it's like more is better <laughs> if but, less is more then more must be a lot more that's right <laughs> i've heard that <laughs> i man but like when yeah, my brother got me into Rush and Genesis. And, you know, I was listening to Phil Collins' solo stuff as well. And, I mean, well, you know, when you're... Uh, I was in school band, like, fifth grade through high school. I got a drum set in when I was 13. Mm-hmm. And, man, it's like when you see Neil and a drum kit, it's like, dude, that's that's amazing. That's kind of heaven for a drummer. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, uh, I was thinking, oh, I was thinking about my hometown. Like in the past few years, um, a few years ago, I started following Josh Fries on Instagram or whatever. And he just seems like a funny guy. And and the last name caught my attention. And because I remember having a drum book that they taught us out of, and it was called this, the Hal Fries Elementary Band Method. Oh, wow. And that's Josh's grandfather. Get out. He taught in my school district growing up. I never had him as a teacher or anything, but it was before my time. And his, I think his dad, Stan, also taught in my, my school district. So it's kind of funny and weird. It's like, oh, man. like I think Josh grew up like in California, but right. it was kind of neat for me to discover, like, oh, yeah, there's some other people have some roots in my hometown. Yeah. Anyway, um, what else about starting in, in Minnesota? Uh, yeah, dad was very brave to buy me a drum kit. You know, I'd be no practicing in the basement, which was cinder block all the way around. <laughs> and up above, like straight up above, you see, uh, you know, the beams mm-hmm. and you see the plywood for the main floor. And on top of that plywood is just a little bit of car, uh, carpet pad and like really thin carpet, and then my dad's chair in the living room. So I would be playing drums. He would like every time I asked, like, "Hey, Dad, can I go downstairs and play drums?" He would say yes. Yeah. Which, uh, and it was so I know it was so freaking loud in the living room. I didn't really think about it at the time. Mm-hmm. I'm just a kid, but he and he'd be trying to watch TV, and he bought. Uh, headphones and a long headphone extension and a little, it was kind of like a, a little amplifier. It had a microphone on it and he would lean that up against the speaker of the, of the TV so that he could <laughs> hear the news as I'm just playing. Dude, you're killing me. That is so amazing. He, yeah, I he was love so, that. He was so supportive and like, yeah. And he'd, you know, I'm sure the neighbors like heard me playing. I, of course, I'd stop at nine or ten p.m. <laughs> but he would joke. He would joke with the neighbors like, "Well, at least I know where he is." 
<laughs> you know, my mom said the same thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I, I love that, dude. And I, maybe I should start another podcast, just like parents of musicians yeah. and that that thing. And that I, that's that's amazing. I feel like it's paying off now. All that encouragement. It's like, yeah, he was just like, go for it. You know. I mean, I love that. That's that. Just take a page from that, and just I'm here for you, man. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful that that he was that way. Yeah. That he supported me kind of in the pursuit of every dream, you know? Yes. Yeah, right. Let me ask you, um, was was the band Eager something that started in Minneapolis? Technically, yes. Um, Patrick Andrew, who was in a Christian band called PFR, or Pray for Rain, okay. they were called for a short time, they were mini, uh, Minnesota folk. Don't you know? <laughs> and they had decided amongst themselves that we're, you know we're going to split. We're just going to break up the band, and they kind of kept it hush hush because they wanted to kind of finish the album that they were working on. But a friend of mine named Ryan Rettler, who actually he lives in Nashville now, uh, Ryan. They asked Patrick, the bass player, asked Ryan, like, "Hey, do you know of any good drummers?" And so Ryan said, hey, you should check out Paul Eckberg. And so I went into jam with Patrick and another singer-songwriter that moved to Minneapolis with his wife, Greg Pope. And they liked me, and so they asked me to join. We were going to try to base the band out of Minnesota, but with wanting to get a label involved and all that, um, we knew that we needed to move to Nashville because um, this is where the industry is. Yeah. And when we, and then, so the three of us moved to Nashville and Mark Kluse, who was in Greg's band in North Carolina, he moved to Nashville. And so we had, you know, two guitar players, bass and drums. That's so technically, yeah, it did start in Minneapolis. I mean, <laughs> Greg, Greg and his wife had moved to Minnesota and thinking like, yeah, we're going to be based here. And then it's like, yeah, actually we're going to move to Tennessee. So, so we moved again, but it was the right move. Like Patrick had so many connections here in town because of his band, which was really successful in, in Christian music. So we tried to, to ride the wave of that. So for somebody that is kind of their story parallels this, yeah. what did you experience when you first came to Nashville and like, okay, uh, I guess we're going to room together and kind of put this together and I'm going to go find a day job in between gigs or like, how do you get started? How did this yeah. get the ball, get the ball rolling? You can't say, Oh, I'm in a band. Uh, <laughs> let me fill out my W2 and you yeah. know, get going so I can get on the payroll. No, it's yeah. I got a job right away, but we were also doing shows. We found someone to, uh, you know, a, a booking agent to book us places and, I needed to find a job that was, that had some flexibility. Yeah, right. So I, I contacted a temp agency. Yes. And uh, did data entry. I don't mean to brag, but I can do 85 words a minute <laughs> with these 10 puppies right here. Uh, and so I, I've, yeah, just to find a, a job I can make some money and yet was flexible, was that was key. We continued, we, I mean, we started rehearsing in Minnesota, did, recorded a couple demos, well, a couple kind of EPs of, you know, their glorified demos, just so we'd have something to hand out to people who are interested. I think Patrick really wanted a lot of money focused towards certain things like mix, you know, you don't want to, 
you know, you don't want to be cheap on that. And, and so we just found an independent label. Uh, it was called Questar slash Mission Records. Um, Mission Records was started by uh, a record company guy who left his company and Questar Video in Chicago funded this record company. We got a lot of what we wanted in, you know, in, the, in the contract, and it was great. We made an album. Actually, we started recording the album even, even though the, the contract wasn't figured out. And we had Jimmy Lee Slos, yeah. uh, who's an amazing bass player here in town, Yeah, uh, was and still is an amazing bass player. He produced all the PFR stuff. Okay. And so Patrick was familiar with them. And so we had him do the Eager album. And through Jimmy Lee, uh, met Chris McHugh. And man, Chris has been, he's been so kind to me. Like he invited me, like I ran into him at Forks. He was like, hey man, I'm like doing a session, you know, in downtown Franklin. Why don't you, if you want to come shadow me, you know, on Tuesday. Oh my God. Uh, yes. You know, come hang. And so, mm -hmm. dude, watching that man play drums, that had really changed the way I play. And how, I mean, how long ago was this, this interaction? Um, this is like right after I moved to town. I mean, I, I'd met Chris through Jimmy Lee. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> cause I'm curious to know like what, it, what your what you were learning during this time yeah. from Jimmy Lee, from Chris, um, um, from the Nashville experience. Yeah. That's a big question. Yeah, man, what was that? Learning? Was there anything like preconceived <laughs> notions of that were just completely Dude, like? I mean, like, well, geez, I didn't know that's the way I it was mean, done. I, I learned a ton just by watching Chris. Mm -hmm. um, just by keeping my eyes open, I have all these preconceived notions that, like, you know, I'm working, I'm doing a temp job, and we're trying to get the band off the ground. And my perception is, man, if we could just end up playing in front of big groups, we're playing in arenas or whatever then I'll know that I'll have it made. Right. And I remember watching, I remember watching a concert video of a Nashville based artist and he had a big band and they're playing in an arena, you know, the place is packed and it was fun. And, and I think, man, they have it made. And as we're doing overdubs for the eager record, we had, we had done tracking at a studio and then we went to, um, Russ Long's place, which he turned his garage into a recording studio. It was called the carport. <laughs> so we would park on the street and then we'd be walking down the driveway past the main house, you know, towards the garage. And I look over and there's a guy scraping paint off the house, just prepping it for paint to be repainted. And I look at the guy and I go, Oh my gosh, it's, that's one of the guys in that band of that concert video that I really enjoyed. Yeah. And you know, they're rocking out and they're getting all this attention. And now here I am, I look up and it's like, he's, you know, going to be repainting a house just to make money. Like that gave me some perspective on, okay, I guess the, the music business isn't always lucrative for players. <laughs> we talked about when this podcast started and I had known Steve Bowman, you know, the original drummer for Counting Crows. Yeah. And I run into him at the airport. He was flying to do a, a one-off gig. And I said, dude, I want you on my new podcast. He goes, I don't, I just I want you to know I don't play drums full-time anymore. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm working at this hotel now. This is, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago. 
And uh, he goes, there was a flood and, you know, I needed some extra money and things were just changing with my house and stuff like that. And I just needed something more consistent. And he goes, I don't know if you want to talk to me. And I was like, are you kidding me? Steve, this is the conversation that needs to be talked about. And um, just the reality of it, but also, like, don't take away from Hmm. the... uh, there is dignity in, in, in this work, you know, in, in, the, in the ability to kind of put your ego aside and say, I, I have to do this, you know, for whatever reason, if it's, if it's your home, if it's your family, if it's, you know, you know, bills and things like that, it's like, and I've done it, and I'm not ashamed to talk about those things, yeah. you know, doing this kind of, it's great. It's, but I understand it. It's, I mean, I want to give the impression that I'm working all the time and that if you call me, I can fit you into my schedule when actually there just might be, you know, the schedule might be pretty empty. But I want to give the impression that I'm busy. I could see the you scene know. where somebody says, Paul, can we do the session <laughs> on Tuesday the 16th? Uh-huh. And you're like, yeah. And then like the camera pans over. You've got your calendar out. Yeah. And it's just blank, blank, blank. Hold on. You say Tuesday. Let me see. I think I could fit you in. Well, really, there's nothing there. But it's the- like tumbleweeds. There's nothing <laughs> I know, dude, um, it's pretty slammed, but I'll, uh, yeah. No, well, I mean, and so let me, let me just throw this at you and and, and see if this inspires any insight on on this whole perception and, and what attracts people to you in a sea of talent Mm. and in a city where you can kind of call just about any drummer you want for your tour or your session Mm -hmm. or whatever. Hmm. I've gotten sessions online from people on other countries, yeah. you know, through air gigs, sound better and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I'll say, well, why did you call me of, uh, you know, the, all the drummers you see on there? Was it the, the demo stuff that I have on there? What was it? The list of meager gear that I have. Uh, but they'll say, oh, I saw you, were, you were from Nashville. And so I figured you knew what you were doing. Oh, wow. Okay. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. Yeah. Just because some guy from Malta sees that I'm living in this, that thinks, oh, cool, whatever, the demos, whatever. But still, he lives in Nashville. So he, I mean, just because this is my zip code doesn't mean I know what I'm doing all of a sudden. <laughs> but it worked. But it worked. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm just, uh, why it do I, it's a whole can of worms. Why do I get calls? Yeah. I, I, I've gotten, well, speaking of email stuff, I think uh, I got an email from some guy in Texas. He really liked my playing. Uh, I think I played on an Andrew Peterson album, Christian Artist. And I think just based on that, he's like, hey, I have a, I have a song. I'm producing a friend of mine who's a, also a musician. Could you play on this one song? And so I did. It was really perk-oriented. And he loved it, and I ended up playing on the whole project. And then I think another project of that artist came around, and the artist contacted me. It's like, I'd love to have you play on this, too. So that was great. And then that initial guy, he was working with another artist and pulled me on that. And then that artist put me in touch with somebody else. And like, word of mouth, that first guy um, from Texas, he kept giving me work. And it was like two years before I ended up meeting him face to face. Yeah. And 
we had a great talk and he's a great guy, just how he came across online. I discovered pretty quick that a big part of getting work is just who you know. Right. I had emailed you like some ideas for questions <clears throat> and I thought about, you've interviewed so many people and talked about like networking and yeah, yeah. how that's how I like, it's, it's kind of a volatile word. It is. I mean, this at, a, at its core, what you're talking about is networking. Yeah. But if, you know, there's some definitions online that say like uh, net, uh, networking, I think I wrote it down, uh, to interact with other people, to exchange information and develop contacts, especially to further one's career. But that can get that can get kind of sticky, you know, and, and because like, are, are you going into meeting people with the attitude, like, how can I use this person to advance my career? Or how can mm -hmm. I use this person for social status so I can maybe meet this person and get this thing out of it? And that's just, uh, I don't know, that's just ugly and- It's all a little big. gross. Yeah, it is gross. Yeah. Where, whereas when I, when I meet people anywhere who I haven't met before, maybe they're in the industry or maybe they're not, if they are musicians or drummers, <laughs> sorry, I didn't mean to say it that way, but that's kind of funny. <laughs> they can be musicians or drummers that uh, maybe, maybe they want to know a little bit about my journey or, but when I run into people, I'm, I'm just excited to maybe be friends, maybe. Yeah. Or I'm thinking like, how can I serve this person? Um, how can I maybe make their life better in a small way without the expectation of even getting something back, like a thank you or, or getting recommended myself because I was such a great guy. Like, man, how can I just be nice and, you know, give them something without, ex you know, expecting something in return? Which is kind of hard because it's like everybody's time is worth something, but I mean, I have the capacity, you know, to do that right now. So I'll gladly do it. I think sometimes we fail to recognize that you will always get something in return when you interact naturally and organically with yeah. people and, and honestly with people. It's, it's like that time when you're on a plane and you're sitting next to somebody and you strike mm -hmm. up that conversation and you realize, man, this is a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying this conversation. Mm -hmm. And it kind of takes off. And um, you're just like that. My, I just, I feel better. Like I've interacted with a, yeah. this other human being I will never see ever again. Yeah. Uh, and I think when you go into that interaction with that mindset, um, you will come away with just benefiting from this human interaction. If something happens beyond that, so be it. But if anything, you're surrounding yourself with people that you're going to want to work with, you're going to want to be with. And uh, I mean, we're talking about an industry. And as our mutual friend Rob McNally says, and by the industry, I do mean the business. <laughs> <laughs> uh -huh. Funny dude. He, he is so funny. He's so funny. Um, and talented. And <laughs> super talented. Please call me. <laughs> call me. Call, call me, Rob. <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, so it, it's, it's one of those things compared to like a corporate thing where everybody's just kind of looking for the bottom. I don't know. I don't yeah, yeah. understand yeah. it all. Uh, but we're talking about art. We're talking about stuff that we have come to as a career as a vocation because it's something that moved us mm -hmm. you know 
Um, we weren't thinking about dollars. We were thinking dollars when we set, picked up the drumsticks. You know, we were thinking of this is super fun. Something yeah. resonates with me. It feeds me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that that never changes. Yeah. We just we all have different reasons to 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 want to do it full time, but it's like. Uh, yeah, these, I mean, gosh, you and I met probably nine years ago at a Christmas party, random, uh-huh. and it's like, I met tons of people that, that night, just all these new people, but it's like, we stayed in touch. Yeah. We kept in touch, like, and it just felt like really organic. Now, it's been a long time coming to do this interview. <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. <laughs> I can't put it, I was like, yeah, I'm ready to do this, and then, you know, something happens, and. But it's like. I, I appreciate that kind of back and forth. We yeah. kept in touch, and it's like that makes me feel more connected to my community hmm. just overall. And if there's music to be done from that, so be it. But that's the last thing I'm thinking of. I'm just thinking, you know, what's going on, yeah. you know, with Paul? What's going on, you know? Uh, and then to find out you're in my neighborhood, and it's like, this is so <laughs> cool. So the chance to like hang out and interact beyond this yeah. interview is more important. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. So the whole idea of networking, we have to talked about that. And, um, and it depends on like, yeah, I think it depends on how you define it. I mean, if you want to define it as meeting people who you have something in common with. Yeah. Like, yeah, you should, you should go out and do that. That's mostly how you get work in this town. I mean, like you have to be a, a good player, but also, you know, like Taylor Swift, you know, wasn't putting out ads like, hey, I need a new drummer, you know, years ago. She was talking to, she was asking the band like, hey, who, who do you know that might be a right. good replacement? It's like, and somebody said Matt Billingsley. So, yeah. And Matt ends up playing drums. Right, right. It's like, man, it's, so not only does he know what he's doing, but it's like you just, somebody knows that he's a nice guy and a great player. Like after my band broke up, one of my first gigs was just you know, a friend of mine, Stephen Lywicky. Give him a shout out. Mm-hmm. And we went on the road and, and played like an acoustic tour. That was a blast. And I knew that even actually even before my band Eager kind of got going, I got to Nashville and I was like, man, I want to be a sideman. You know, I, I want to be hired gun. Um, what attracted you to that? Do you remember the movie That Thing You Do? Yeah. Tom Hanks? Yeah. Great movie. Yeah, for sure. And I, it's, you know, this, this group of friends, you know, they form a band and they get really popular and it's fun. And then towards the end of the movie, spoiler, spoiler alert, <laughs> came out in what, 1996. I know. Spoiler alert, <laughs> that at the end of the movie, the bass player goes missing and they have a TV appearance. Yeah. It's like, what are we going to do? And then they bring in this guy named Wolfman. The, the character's name is Scott Pell. Yeah. And he fills in. He kind of comes to the rescue. And it's like, who's this guy? And, and then at the very, very end of the movie, they're in the studio. And they're going to record a song. Now the guitar player has gone missing. And it's Wolfman is there with his bass. And the drummer and the singer, and then the singer gets upset because you know he realizes that the record deal they signed is is not what he wanted, and he quits. And the the drummer is there, and he's sad. His band is broken up, and the bass player goes, "Well, I guess he won't be needing me today." And he's packing up his bass, and Tom Hanks, this character, the label guy, Mister White, goes, um, 
you're a good man, Scott Pell. Uh, give me a call later this week. We'll do something. And he's walking away. And in the midst of the sadness of this drummer, his band breaking up and it's over, I look at that bass player going like, oh, his musical life continues. Yes. You know, he's like, he's going to be hanging out with people. There's like, there's, he's going to work again. And he's in a community of like, that's pretty cool. Cause like fame kind of comes and goes. And right. if you hit it big as, you know, a member and owner of a band, you could make a lot of money and not that that happens a lot. And I thought, man, it's like, I want to be that guy that yeah, has, right. you know, regardless of what, what happens, he's going to keep working. <laughs> like just keep the fame, just give me the money <laughs> is a phrase I keep coming back to like, I mean, it's fun to be recognized, but after a while, like, I just kind of want to survive. And um, anyway, that was one of the things that came to mind that, like, I want to, I kind of work with different people and just right. be in a community. And I think we've all worked with artists that um, have less experience performing than we do, and less variety of performing and less variety of music uh, because of the sideman thing that we've done the variety of situations we've been thrown mm -hmm. into. Uh, a great drummer from Canada, Chad Melchert, um, it, uh, brought this to my attention. Uh, and I said, if any word of advice for when you're in the studio? And he goes, yeah, I've got something for you. Think about the time that we spend in the studio, whether at home or in a, in a studio. And then that singer that comes in and has written some songs and wants to do it, it may be their first time in the studio. It may be their third time in the studio. This may have been your fourth session that week. So your time in the studio is greater than this singer, this songwriter, this mm -hmm. artist. So treat that with the respect that it, it is necessary, Absolutely. and 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 uh, if the person doesn't understand the way things work or uses the wrong terminology, don't uh, you, you know uh, shame them? Don't shame them. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Be supportive. Be a cheerleader for the situation. Yeah. And it's like you're all in it together. Don't be like, well, I've been so. And, and I think the sideman thing has those benefits over time, you accumulate this experience that you carry with you mm -hmm. to every gig. So could you talk a little bit about that? I'd ask some producer friends of mine, like what they appreciate about me. I think the way I listen to artists, mm. you know, when we're getting ready to listen to the demo before we track it, um, maybe the artist wants to say something like, actually this song is about this and this, and I don't know, eye contact. Just treating people like, like you were saying, just with respect. That person you know, remembers that experience. Absolutely, it's like it's their maybe the first time you know making an album, and it's and you're maybe more concerned about something else going on that week. But this is, I mean, they've they're likely maybe spending their own money. You know, it's an independent record, and a lot is riding on this. So. Yeah, you just want to be considerate, be mindful, and listen, and kind of find out what they want. The produ I mean, the producer is in charge, so you're really taking your cues from the producer, but also, you know, letting the artist know that hey, I hear you, and I'll keep that in mind. And, and but also, the producer might have been the person that called you. 
yeah, absolutely. for the session. And they know that when you're going to be there, yeah. that you're going to make their client's experience that much better. Yeah. You know, and they're like, dude, Paul's a great drummer, but also like my he friend. He dresses really in. well. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> my, <laughs> Thank God this is an audio only. Uh, <laughs> Amen. <laughs> uh, but when the singer left today, they were just ecstatic yeah. about their experience today. And I want them to feel cared about. Exactly. You know, like, uh, and instead of, oh, I'm just here to make money. It's like, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I am making money today, but, but it's, it's more than that. It's like, we're making music. I'm just like, I'm just making your dreams come true, you know, and I'm, I'm coming in after a take and I'm looking at the artists like, yeah, do you like this? And they're giving me the thumbs up and yeah, that's that I know that, Hey, that's great. Right. Um, yeah. 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 I, I, that, I just, when, when Chad mentioned that about, uh, it, it opened my eyes to my behavior in the studio. Oh yeah. Uh, with other people, um, and also, uh, I observe the way my fellow musicians, you know, interact with a singer or songwriter yeah. or other people in positive and negative mm -hmm. ways. And not try not to be judgmental, but take a kind of take a page from that and say, yeah. "Man, that's that's really cool." And it is, but it is also well if you're doing, you know, if you're doing a live gig like being prepared is certainly a huge, a huge deal. I, when, when you said that about being prepared, yeah, I, <laughs> I have nightmares. My nightmares often revolve around me not being prepared. For instance, <laughs> yes. this, I had a, a nightmare of the good news is Paul, that you're playing drums for you too. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the bad news is you don't know any of the songs and you go on in five minutes. Okay, that was one. I had another bad dream. Uh, it was, I was playing in the house band for some festival uh, and Questlove was the the guy who put together the band. You know, he chose me to play drums. Yeah. And during the festival, you know, I wasn't playing well and I wasn't prepared. And I look over side stage and I see Questlove just like, so such a look of disappointment on his face. <laughs> and I woke up and I was like, thank God that was just a bad dream. Cause I, it's just so such a priority for me. And I, I've been, I've been thrown into, I was thrown early on. I was thrown into a situation. Um, a friend of mine named Cason Cooley, who's become a great producer here in town. He was with a band called The Normals, a Christian band. And I get a call Saturday morning. And he says, hey, man, uh, my band is doing a couple shows this weekend, and our, our drummer can't make it. Um, this is Saturday morning? Yeah, can you, can you, what are you doing this weekend? I'm like, no, nothing. Uh, uh, he's like, yeah, do you want to, do you want to play? It's like, sure, when are you leaving? And he goes, how quickly can you get here? Yeah. <laughs> and so I threw my drums in the car and I drove over to their apartment complex and we loaded up the van and I hadn't heard any of the songs. Yeah. And so I said, well, just hit play on the car stereo. And I just took out my notepad and I started making charts, you know, and a couple songs in, they start, you know, they start talking and they're laughing, they're making noise. I'm guys, just shut up, guys, <laughs> shut up. I'm trying to learn your freaking songs. And they, uh, <laughs> but they were, 
it it made me it you know it also made me feel better because you know we're just like we're all friends here and that really took the pressure off it's like yeah we're just gonna go make music and it's gonna be great and i paul i'm sure you're gonna do great so i you know i I charted all the songs on the way out to the first show and we played two shows out there and and they loved it and you know appreciated it but usually like you know i'm getting a call at least you know a while out and i have time to prepare and do my homework um i i got to fill in on drums to play for mark schultz who's a christian singer Mm -hmm. will denton yeah, uh, uh, yeah. called me and Will was going to start working with Stephen Curtis Chapman. So he said, uh, love to have you, you know, start filling in and you're going to have to run tracks from your computer, which I'd never done before. Okay. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out what DAW, what DAW to go with. Uh, I talked to my friend, Paul Moak, who's so, you know, technologically savvy and all that and yeah. he said you know we'll try a digital performer which is a, which is a motu daw and um I, I ended up of course with ableton live but i did i you know god bless will it's like he set me up so well t- told me about intros and outros and what to look out for and was so detailed and invited questions and i called mark schultz's assistant i said hey are we gonna have a rehearsal yeah <laughs> and she goes, well, let me get back to you. And then she says, Mark says, do you need a rehearsal? Yeah. And I go, uh, no. You're right. No, I, I'm, I'm fine. And just realizing that they're not expecting to have a rehearsal. So yeah. I, I'm just going to go in. So it's, I, I fly in some city somewhere and, you know, and meet Mark that day. It was almost like, hey, I'm Paul. Nice to meet you. Three, four. Right, exactly. It was almost that. Yeah. But I, we got there to this music festival, like there's 20,000 people there. I'm running tracks for the first time. I've never played with these guys. I'm just asking questions in the dressing room. It's like, what about this? Like, okay, well, just watch for this. Okay, great. They answered all my questions. And I remember it was uh, Mark Childers on bass, who's now playing for Carrie Underwood. I think Mm. he's the MD. And Scott Bernard on guitar. Oh yeah, I know Scott. Who's been playing for Kenny Loggins Mm -hmm. in all these years. And uh, Scott was so great um so nice to me uh like there's some sections where like we're, we're vamping and or mark is vamping and and scott he comes back there by the drum riser and he cues me in on sections you know if I, just to make sure that we hit it together and i was so grateful so it was like i crushed it i was so happy it's like i did my homework right and and you know and we all benefited but it was beyond the music, though. It was beyond the songs. Yeah. There, I mean, yeah, there is some of that. But, I mean, you had to probably keep an eye on the flow of the show. Yeah. When songs were... Because mm-hmm. you're responsible for starting. Now, was it one of those things where you get a bar of click and then you count the band in? It depended. I mean, there was, you know, there was a song where I think it was just kind of a like a one-bar loop that just kept going and going early on in the show. Yeah. And I just, okay, Paul, it's like, you just start the loop, then Mark will talk, and then he'll intro the song, and then he'll, you know, he'll maybe look back at you or just listen for this word. Then you can count everybody in. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or or something like that. It was different, but. Um, and some other songs is like, yeah, two bars, you know, of click, and then it goes, or if it's if it's pretty slow, 
you know, you don't want to be waiting around. So maybe it'll just be one bar click. So listen for that. Yeah, yeah, right. Because um, you don't, yeah, you just, you don't want to lose the momentum. Yeah, you just really want to be on your game. Um, some of those singer songwriters or some of the singers I've worked with have the same script they use. Uh-huh. And you know when they're finishing yeah. their thing and you can start that. Yep where you've got that bar to yourself and then you can count everyone else. And then sometimes I've had, I'm like, when are they going to end this? And uh-huh. you have to judge that when they're finishing their story. And I've cut some people off uh, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, I guess. Oh, anyway, I guess here we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it takes, you know, it takes several shows to kind of like yeah. learn people's rhythms. Yeah. And unfortunately I didn't have that, but, you know, we, we made it and it wasn't too awkward. And this is what I'm talking about. Like these skills that you develop over time as yeah. a sideman to be able to like read the room mm-hmm. and, and figure out. And not out. talk over people either. Sorry. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry. And to back up. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. You know, just to try and, and keep a show. You mean like, I always think to myself, I know how a, a front man does a thing. Yeah. Can I do it? No, I, I'm I'm not I'm not that person. But I I know I know it when it's being done mm-hmm. well. You know, we've sat behind some amazing performers. Yeah. That just oh my gosh, this person is commanding the room. Yeah. This is amazing. This is good. This is good. I see what you're doing there. Mm-hmm. I see what you're doing there. So it's just trying to kind of like, where do I fit in in this in this scenario? Yeah. Whether it's live or in the studio, mm-hmm. you know. You want to be on your game. You want to be paying attention. Yeah, yeah. Um, situation. Yeah, it's like you, you have someone's yeah someone's career in your hands. Yeah. Like you just you you want to treat it with value. That's why I think I see some of these managers in town. They're just looking for people who will do the job for cheap, mm. and sometimes it's a race to the bottom. Mm-hmm. And like, well, are you sure you want to do that? Because some you know maybe there's some you know, college aged kid who's really excited. They just want to be on the road and be on stage. We'll do it for cheap, but maybe they don't have the experience. And that, that seems like a risk Yeah, to me. Yeah. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, Are you seeing that more now? I don't know. I've just, I've just heard about, I mean, I just think of that one instance. And I also think about musicians just getting paid poorly. Yeah. And just cause you know, managers or artists who want, they just want more money in their pocket. seems like the, you know, it seems like the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Yeah. It's not really a political statement. It's like, that's kind of what I observe. And like, you're gonna have to sacrifice something for that. And it might just be having an experienced person up there. And I don't know, it's just risky. It's an interesting time, uh, especially like uh, I, I see it in, in, in country music that seem to be less interested in, in kind of the whole image thing compared to like maybe pop music. So it seems like there's, there's, there we're like, we just need somebody that looks the yeah. part more than can play the part. Maybe. Uh, and Hopefully you can get both. I don't know. Yeah, 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 but. for sure. Uh, and what are your expenses as a 23 year old? Um, cool. Yeah. Well, we, we got you covered, Yeah, yeah. you know, and you want to be on a tour bus and you want to do this yeah. and then, and so they're like, Ooh, let's go. You yeah. want, you want somebody who's experienced. I think as a drummer, you should know how to run tracks. Like, I think you should be experienced with Ableton live. It's a great program. Hmm. 
uh, get to know that because that'll make you more marketable. I mean, you should, you know, you should look good. You should play well. Yeah. Um, I've heard in, a, in an interview, I heard a drummer say, it's like, well, I don't mess with that stuff. You know, the, the Ableton live, like you're kind of limiting yourself if you don't, you know, like if you sing, like, let it be known. It's like, that might right. get you a gig over someone who doesn't oh, sing. I, I, yeah. Know? Yeah. Somebody, I, a couple times, do you sing? No. Oh, okay. Yeah. I really <laughs> need somebody that can sing. Yeah. Okay, well, get this. I was listening to, it might have been your interview with Rich Redmond, or I, I can't remember where I heard him, but he's, you know, he went to school for music and he knows about, he knows a lot about music, just having studied it. And he talked about like, hey, you should know the difference between like, you know, a samba and a bossa nova. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm listening to this, I'm listening to him, it's like I'm rolling my eyes. Like no producer has asked me about, you know, the difference between a samba and a bossa nova and like I've, no one's ever asked me to play those kind of beats in the studio but then i paused and i thought but man like rich knows about those rhythms and maybe in the midst of a country song he could put a, pull off a cool fill that may incorporate a little bit of that flavor yeah that's appropriate yeah and what he's done it's like knowing about those different rhythms it's like he has more tools in his tool belt that he can use Mm -hmm. and pull out at a moment's notice and so well basically i'm sorry i'm sorry rich for for doubting you but (laughs) (laughs) but it's like you know it's like it's it makes you i don't know more versatile it pays to copy what work has worked for other drummers yeah even even like setups i um after playing you know as a sideman uh for some like kind of Christian rock acts. People knew you for that, but you had an opportunity to work with somebody. Yeah, who like wasn't in that vein um, named Michael Card. It's like I had had an opportunity to to do, yeah, another kind of rock thing, but a friend of mine convinced me, it's like, well, people already know that you do that. How about you try this over here, which is Mike's music is more kind of adult contemporary, really piano-based um, you know, guitar, he plays guitar, he plays bazooki and banjo, and it's very, uh, you know, a lot more mellow. And his drummer, his perk player, Ken Lewis, he is so creative. He'd be a great person to interview <laughs> for the podcast. Um, he was the guy that, again, networking, he was the guy that gave Mike my name. I was really thankful for that. And so I was looking for a starting point and I think, I think copying what's worked for other people, copying from other people can pay off. And so I was just looking for a starting point when I started playing for Mike. And I thought, well, let's just copy what Ken Lewis was doing. And so uh, he had a snare drum. And then for the kick, he had a tambourine with a head on it mm-hmm. and put like a 421 underneath it. And so you play it with a, like a brush or a blastic or something. And you get this kick sound. And it was so cool. It's like, you know, kick, snare. Just play, playing kick and snare with his hands. Yeah, with, you know, just Patterns, with, yeah. with brushes or whatever. And then, yeah. you know, I threw a, a couple splash cymbals. And then he had a conga kind of on either side that he would sometimes hit with, you know, plastics or brushes or whatever, sometimes play with the hands. And then he had uh, a hand drum over to one of his sides 
I think I like I brought a djembe or something and had a tambourine on a gahate bracket with a kick pedal attached yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Had bar chimes and the sizzle cymbal and then he had shakers and all, all these other things. And I learned to be such a better player as far as doing acoustic sets. Yeah. You know, just by touring and playing over and over again with Mike, which I was a little bit intimidated to, uh, to go play for him because he's, uh, I mean, he's so smart. He's like studied the Bible a lot. He's written a lot of songs based on scripture. And I thought, man, this is going to be such a, you know, I, I just viewed him as maybe like overly religious or quietly pious. And I get on the bus with him and, and the band and the crew. And he's like, man, he's just a really nice guy from Madison, Tennessee. <laughs> he's kind of the Southern guy. And like, okay, that takes the pressure off. Like we're, you know, we're just friends here. And he's just a really kind person. Yeah. And even, and I learned a lot about from him, learned a lot about creativity because his, his view of it, is we're not going to like, okay, we're going to work. What we're not going to do is work really hard and pressure ourselves to, you know, be the best we can be and be creative. It's like creativity. What he believed uh, was creativity comes out of community. Oh, wow. And so it's like, I, I know you can play. So let's just hang and become friends and en enjoy each other's presence and, yeah. and go make music and let's, and that took the pressure off just making room to have fun and be creative. And like, I really appreciated that about him. So it wasn't, it wasn't just, you know, musical. It was just about the hang. It was about yeah, learning to be creative, just based out of community. I learned, you know, and, and then when I get back into town and I'm playing like acoustic shows for other people, learning how to make, make a gig, more interesting because I'm not playing the same thing every song on this cajon. Like maybe I'll, I'll do the cajon thing with the, the kick drum pedal backwards. Okay. Yeah. You know, play with your heel or whatever. Like, let's bring a snare too. Uh, and maybe some, you know, splash cymbals, shakers. Uh, maybe let's, you know, try brushes. Maybe let's turn off the snares for this. Why don't we put a piece of fabric on the snare drum? Do you find that the room inspires you? Like, the acoustics of the room. Oh, wow. um, I try not to think too much about that. Uh -huh. I'm more focused in on because you know the room might be very uninspiring, where <laughs> 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 you're expecting like, oh, I thought this was going to be cool, and it's not a cool yeah place. But let's let let's do our best to make the music cool, right? Um, so just just being through that experience really. I think made me a better player for like acoustic sets. Do you, have you found an opportunity to carry that experience over when you're producing, when you're mm. working with other musicians and be like, you know what, this really worked for me to draw out my creativity. How can I extend that grace, if you will, yeah. to my other musicians, my other people that I'm working with? I've never really produced anything. I'm just kind of like drummer for hire, you know, I'm just doing <laughs> sessions. Uh, but man, I've had, I just had a, a younger drummer friend of mine recently asked me about ideas for a perk setup. Uh, I think he's going to, uh, 
they're doing a Christmas show or something for his church. And there's already a guy on drum set. Yeah. So I thought, well, with that perspective, maybe you can do this and this and just giving him a bunch of ideas. And I kind of asked him, it's like, are you going to be the only kind of drum perk thing on stage? If so, maybe this is my perspective. Right. But if, if there's already a drummer, then maybe you can go with less and use this and that. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. No, I mean, I, I, I think we've all experienced it where you have somebody in, you know, that's, that's band leading or whatever, that is just kind of like standing over you hoping like you better do this. Right. You know, what, what, I, I don't know uh, what yeah. they're expecting. And then other times people are like, no man, here, we hired you for a reason. We, we want your ideas. We want, hmm. you, know, you know, and, um, just that trust. And I don't know how many times I've had this conversation with my wife where it's like, I love working with this person. They trust me. And yeah. when, when they trust me, I play better. Hmm. When I know there's some apprehension or maybe I'm, oh I'm not the first call guy and so they've reluctantly called me and I was available. I get that. Hey, and I, you know, if I'm not the first person on the list, cool. If I'm the third, if I'm the 10th, hey, I'm just happy to be on the list. But then you get to the gig and they still, you still feel like they wish their regular hmm. player was there. And you're like, I'm just, sorry, you're not getting the best out of me hmm. today uh, compared to, I'm glad you're here. I mean, I don't need my hand held. It's not what I'm saying. Uh -huh. But... Um, it's amazing how that attitude transcends into sometimes a creative and a great performance or yeah. a bad performance, depending. It's like, man, you got to overcome that. It's like, yeah, you. It's like, <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure it's been said to some players before. But it's like, by the way, you weren't our first call. I don't think anybody's actually said that. But you know, Chad Wackerman has an interesting story oh, no. about like people. Oh, no. People call. Well, I mean, it's not so specific. But it's like. We wanted Steve Gadd, but he wasn't available. We need you to do your best, Steve. Oh, Gadd. I'll be yeah, I'll be second to Steve Gadd. That's you, cool. You'll be do. We need you to do your best, Steve Gadd mm -hmm. impression. Got it. Cool. Because what the what he was trying to get across is you get oh. to a point in your career when you want to be called like we want Chad Wackerman. So guess what? You're here, and we want you to be you. Yeah. You know, not imitate somebody else. No. So although a little off topic, but at the no, same no, time. no, I get it. Well, I said, you know, Chris McHugh's playing has been really transformative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, man, I, I played like him a lot. I knew kind of his approach and just the way he hit, you know, he would typically hit hard. And that paid off when I got an audition just because I, again, because I knew somebody who was the yeah. guy who was running sound at church. He said, oh, you know, my wife is, is working with this new country artist named Whitney Duncan. Yeah. And she's on Warner Brothers and uh, Mark Bright and John Shanks are producing her and and we're, we're looking to audition a band. It's like, do you want to audition? I'm like, yeah, that'd be great. Because I hadn't done any kind of, I hadn't done country music to this point. And I prepared. I spent like a whole week just absorbing five songs. And man, I was just, I was playing like McHugh and I just memorized every fill and I went in and I nailed it and I got the gig. They, maybe it was just, maybe it wasn't just because I played like Chris, but 
I played with, you know, I played decisively. <laughs> Maybe that's something about what Chris does. You know, he's, you know, he's, he's wholeheartedly, you know, making decisions. And I love that. He plays decisively, but someone might interpret that as just forceful and like mm -hmm. heavy handed. Some people want that. Right, exactly. Yeah. But there is a swing in his approach. Hmm. And he, and the way he plays those, you know, snare rolls and stuff mm -hmm. like that, it's, but it, yeah, I mean, there's still authority within the nuance. Yeah. Even though he's described as a freight train. Yeah. You know, like and he's, so and, and he's, he continues to evolve too. It's yeah. Like I've been, I've been following him on, on Instagram. Like, yeah. oh, I'm seeing, th I love, he's, you know, we'll, we'll set up his phone or something so I can, he can record himself. And, yeah, same. And uh, I can see like he's a really versatile drummer. And he's like has a lot of diversity in kind of what he's doing, and um, I appreciate him a lot. He's uh, he um, he put my name in for a gig. Um, there's an artist named Will Owsley, mm -hmm. who's a great guitar player, mm -hmm. and uh, he made great, it was like power pop music. Mm -hmm. Um, and McHugh played on this first record and, you know, uh, <laughs> and I ran into, uh, Owsley. He just, he just went by his last name, Owsley. So I'm at 12th and Porter. We were both there to see some artists and, I went up and introduced myself. It's like, hey, Will, my name is Paul Eckberg. And he goes, oh, hey, man, uh, McHugh says you're a great drummer. Do you sing? And I go, well, no, not really. It's like, oh, okay. You know, and months pass because yeah. I heard there might be a, a drumming opportunity with Owsley. Again, 12th and Porter, run right. into Will. It's like, hey, Will, Paul Eckberg. Oh, hey, man. It's like, McHugh says you're a great drummer. Hey, do you sing? I go, yep, sure do. <laughs> <laughs> And I got a call like the next week and uh, the guy who used to drum for him, who was a great singer, uh, uh, like wasn't available or something. And so uh, I, I went over to his house, you know, and I said, hey, would you, I want to record you singing the parts that you want me to play. So he brought out an acoustic guitar and, and I recorded that. And then I went home and again, like prepared. I did my homework. Oh my gosh. And because everybody in that band sang, it was like... Uh, you know, Will, um, Jonathan Hamby, who's like just a, such a great B3 player, great pop B3 player, Millard Powers um, on bass, who's a great singer-songwriter himself. He's playing with the Counting Crows right now. Oh, wow. And and then me singing too. And it was hard because like... Did you have experience singing before? Not from behind the kit. Okay. You know, not from behind the kit. But I, I, I practice like I'm doing this fill and I'm trying to do this vocal line at the same time. Like I had to practice that over and over again. Um, it was hard, but, wow. but it was, it was so much fun, man. It's like, um, both, I think Will wrote a lot of songs with Millard who was playing bass for that gig. They, Ben Folds introduced those two guys. Hmm. And they, oh man, I need to promote this. They had a band called the Semantics 
and they recorded an album with Zach Starkey on drums, Ringo's yeah, son. Yeah, right. Jesus. And Geffen, you know, was the label, but they shelved it. And so, like, I went on eBay and, like, ordered a CD from Japan or something. <laughs> and it was so worth it. It's just so catchy. I love the power pop stuff. Um, there's some songs that um, I think that maybe I think Miller maybe only wrote, and those were amazing too. And I was, I just loved, I, that was one of my, that was one of my most favorite gigs was playing for Owsley with those guys. I felt really proud to be a part of it. Wow. It wasn't, it wasn't the, it wasn't the first album. It was the second album, uh-huh. but, um, you know, it, w- it wasn't glamorous. Like we jump in a van, pull the trailer and it's not making a ton of money, but, but the music was awesome and everybody's fun to hang out with. And Dude, that, that seems like it trumps everything. I love that. It was, yeah, it was great. I mean, you know, again, there's more to life than, you know, than money, but it really made it worth it. That music was great. Um, yeah, w- when we got home from that, it's kind of like the, mem- I think the momentum that we were trying to build with Owsley's career and, and that second record, I think it just kind of slowed Will's career as a sideman. You know, like, you know, in the past he played like for Shania Twain and Amy Grant and he's making all this money and he, he was buying gear, built a studio, you know, made his first album, shopped it around, mm-hmm. you know, to labels kind of after we were done trying to promote that second album, you know, he's trying to go back to doing sessions um, and uh, and touring, but not as many people were calling him for sessions. Uh, as I said, his artist career kind of slowed down. Um, were people assuming, oh, he's out, he's doing his own thing? Well, I mean, he did... Maybe as part of that, he also was out in California for a little bit, playing on big records like Jonas Brothers and Demi Lovato and all this. Good Lord. But when that dried up and he's back in Nashville, like you know, his lost you know the his touring gig, and people weren't calling him an, enough for sessions. Yeah, and I think that was a a real big issue for him. I mean, he had a lot of personal problems too, but. That was a, a big issue for him. I remember he called me and he said, man, I'm, I'm working, you know, this day job. What us musicians kind of call a real job, <laughs> you know, which is like a non-music nine yeah, to five yeah, for job. Sure, for sure. Um, and, but he was telling me how he had this, this real job in downtown Franklin. I could just hear the, how dejected he was and like just talking, he was just so full of shame. It's like, you know, you got to make money, right? Right. But he was, he felt a lot of shame around that. And, um, and also, you know, again, he, there's a lot of other, other things going on in his personal life, but he ended up taking his own life. Oh my gosh. And I think, I think his, one of his big problems was that he believed he was his gift, which if you do that and people, you know, are, are loving you, appreciating you and calling you, that seems like could be a great thing. But if people aren't calling you for 
shows. They're not listening to your album. They're not calling you to tour. You may start to think, well, what good am I? You know, nobody, mm-hmm. nobody is appreciating me for, for, for what I can do. Um, that can tear you apart, man. Because his identity, his yeah. identity was so tied into what he did. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, it, it can it can take a toll. Um, I th- I think about um, this is crazy. Even if like you're really well known um, and appreciated um, and excellent, it can still affect you. I was doing. I was playing on an album here in Nashville uh, for an artist, and we were just spending a week doing a ton of songs. And you know, we did a song, and I'm sitting back in the control room as they're doing guitar overdubs, and the artist goes, "Hey, man, um, you know Jeff Picaro played on one of my earlier albums." I'm wow. like, "Oh man, that's cool." He's like, "Tell me about that." You know, and he told me how great he was. You know, of course, and. And then he told me that for maybe the next album, I don't know, the producer or, you know, they just decided to go with a different drummer, mm-hmm. uh, probably another huge LA session player. And uh, Picaro, he, he may have been in the same studio complex or something, but Jeff finds out about it. And uh, I don't know if, he, if they run in, you know, face to face or if, just over the phone, but he goes, he finds out that this artist used a different drummer for the next record. And Jeff goes, Hey man, um, did you not like my playing? I mean, did I do something wrong? Did I, you know, like it just sounds so unconfident coming from Jeff Pocaro. Right. And right. like, how could, how could he feel like that? Just being one of the world's best drummers, yeah. you know, playing and you know, this, this artist isn't really internationally well known either, but like he was kind of like hurt by that. I thought, that's a that's an amazing thing to hear that someone who's so talented and so well respected still feels right that bite of like oh like I played for this person and he didn't call me back yeah you know yeah I don't know yeah again it goes back to identity or whatever it is amazing there's a keyboard player who works with Alabama. Um, I was working with a group that was doing some opening gigs for them. And so we were in catering and he was just spreading wisdom. Yeah. And it was amazing hearing him. And he was talking about all these people he'd worked with over the years. And I was picking his brain with these different, just classic Nashville session players and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this person was great. This is great. And he goes, you know, but at the end of the day, how are you as a person? How are you as a human being? Hmm. Because when you're gone, what are they going to remember? You for that cool lick, that record you played on? Hmm. No. They're going to remember you for who you were as a person. Hmm. And yeah, I mean, it seems really obvious. But I think what made me think of that story is our own interpersonal dialogue that we have with ourselves mm-hmm. and our, what is our worth? What is our value to ourselves? And you can, and, and it seems obvious, uh, but um, unfortunately for your friend, it was so heavy mm-hmm. that um, just not getting called or this, this 
change in his career was enough to cause him to take his life. It, and that should be a wake-up call for all of us to it, keep that. It certainly contributed to that. You know, it wasn't the only thing in his okay, life. Okay, sure, yeah. It's, I mean, man, we have to find our value. We have to base our value on something that's not temporal, you know, because, like, maybe, you know, is it on your kids? It's like, you know, they can screw up, or is it on your your wife or something? It's like, what yeah. if that, what, what if divorce happens? Like, we're, what's going to happen to yeah. you? It's like, there's so many things that could just break or fade away. It's like, you got to find something that's more permanent than all that, you know? Right. I was, um, did you ever see the documentary uh, Hired Gun? No, not yet. No. They, they interview a lot of, you know, sidemen and uh -huh. um, they interview, among other people, they interview uh, Liberty DeVito. Yeah, right. You know, was was it was Billy Joel's original drummer? Is yeah. That right? Uh huh. I wrote down, man, I wrote down what he said. It was it was another sad story. He he talks about losing the Billy Joel gig, and here's what he said: You are no longer the person you were the day before. You're no longer in Billy Joel's band. You're no longer going on tour. You're no longer playing at Madison Square Garden. Your identity is totally gone now. You're not the person you were the day before. And Doug had a very, very difficult time with that. He was talking about Doug Stegmeyer, the bass player, yeah. who also lost the gig. Yeah. And and sadly, Doug like killed himself. He was only like 43 years old. Good Lord. It's like, again, it's another identity piece. Um, and I, um, I read an interview um, with Don Felder. This is a 2012 interview. He had to do, it looks like he had to do some work this is what he said in that interview. Don Felder, you know, of course he was with the Eagles. Yeah. When I left the band, in that same 12-month period, I went through a separation and a divorce with my wife. So all the images that I had adopted and had been wearing for almost 30 years in a rock band with a group of people that I considered my friends uh, in the Eagles, uh, being married, a father, family man, all of that was stripped away. So I really wanted to figure out how I got from this little dirt road in Gainesville, Florida, where I was born and raised, through this whole process to where I joined the Eagles, what happened to me while, while I was in the Eagles, and now that I was no longer a part of that machine, who I was. What were the lessons I had learned from that experience so I could go forward the rest of my life without carrying that unresolved baggage? It's like... Man, that's, that, that'll take some work, you know? Yeah. It's like when, when everything, yeah, in, in, that, in that year, that 12-month period where everything kind of falls apart, like, okay, like, let's look at this process and, like, who am I and where I am, where, I, where am I now? Mm -hmm. It's important, you know? Important right. Things to think about. And how to, how to if, if need be, pivot and kind of figure mm -hmm. out. Yeah. I had a chance to interview Brian Tishy not that long ago, and... Uh, He's he goes out and plays with Don from time to time. Okay, and yeah, he's like he's and just had nothing but great things to say mm. about that, you know. And I'm sure it just takes some time to kind of reinvent yourself, dude. Once a band is, once a situation changes and is over, or what? What if your whole what if your whole world changes? Like if you you seen Caddyshack? Yeah, yeah. I I think about there was one scene. It was really one phrase. Where like the main caddy character, Danny, mm. um, he's you know he's trying he's 
trying to see if maybe he could get a scholarship and he's talking with like the bad guy who's like the, the rich, you know, country club member. Right, right, right. Who, he's just mean. And, and he goes like, well, you know, I really wanted to go to law school after I graduated, but it doesn't look like my parents, you know, have enough money to afford that. And that, you know, and the bad guy goes, well, the world needs ditch diggers too. And I thought, man, that's such a, you know, such a callous thing to say. But what if I was on the receiving end of that comment? Like, how do I take that? Like, is there some truth to that? Like, well, what if I, God forbid, you know, if I lost the ability to, to drum somehow yeah, um, and I have to, you know, become a ditch digger, if I have to start doing something that is really not my dream job, will I be okay with that? Yeah. Well, I, cause you know, not everybody gets to do what they love. It's, it's a luxury, you know, to get to For do sure. what you love. For sure. But yeah, again, you need to ask yourself, yeah, will I be, will I be okay? I think when you look at the broader context of how people are surviving in our world, it gives you a healthy perspective on the opportunities that we have to play music. And when a gig, a situation is not ideal, that always keeps me grounded and keeps me, mm. allows me to be more positive in this, in a, in a tough situation, whether it's in the studio or on the road that benefits everybody. I I'm really fortunate that my wife's work gives me a healthy perspective on how people struggle in life. And so that when I can go home and sleep in a warm bed and play music, even if it's, again, not the most ideal situation, I'm always like, life is good. Yeah. And it could change tomorrow. But so far, it's been good. And um, I've got certain markers that I'm like, this is this is great. And um, if it all changes tomorrow, I'm, uh, I, I've gotten to a place where I, I think I'm okay with it. But, yeah. but it's because of those stories that unfortunately gives you, gonna get, can give you perspective on that. Hopefully a healthy perspective. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. I want to make sure that we talk about your studio experience and, yeah. and kind of what a lot of drummers are doing now and what's important. Okay. Uh, had a chance to meet your engineer, Evan, and yep. we were talking about um, just getting good sounds. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of drummers now that are working in their homes and working in their space and mm -hmm. what they have available to them and where to invest gear, where mm. to invest our time and our energy yeah. to do more of it, to do more work yeah. uh, for people. And so we were also talking before about how as you, as you grow, you start updating stuff and it's really easy to get into the weeds, especially when you're watching YouTube and you're yeah. watching people. Oh my, oh my gosh, I should buy this. I should buy that. Um, and you want to, and you, yes, you want to, <laughs> and it's a disease. It's like, you can't stop. <laughs> I wonder if you could speak to this right now. What I'm doing is I'm trying to provide the best drum sounds I can. Yeah. And what I mean by that compared to what you see on social media and whatever is raw drum sounds that are going through some type of a preamp and, you know, 
that involves mic placement, that involves drum tuning, it involves all these things, touch, tone. So for somebody that has just a basic setup or whatever, like what what have you learned? What advice can you give in, in regard to recording at home? You know, get a laptop, get an inexpensive interface, get some 57s, just go. I, yeah. I started with a Digi002, running Pro Tools through there. So that's four preamps. And then I bought an M-Audio Octane, yeah. which has like eight pre's and a digital out. So I was able to go to the digital in on that Digi002 and bought a bunch of 57s for the drums. I had traded, I had the like a MIDI keyboard that I traded that kick drum mic for. It was a Beta 52. And I got two AT2020s, Audio-Technica, for overheads. Yeah. And they sound amazing. Like Audio-Technica, I think, still today, they're doing research and development. Like, it's great gear. And each of those microphones are like $99. Yeah, and that's crazy. It was amazing. And I just started, uh, I just started recording myself. I would record myself playing with a click so I could hear it's like where... I'm getting off or I'm slowing down or speeding up. Um, for me, you know, it used to be at the beginning of songs, like, okay, here we go, here we go. Here. You know, I start and I'd be like way on top of the click and pushing it way too much. And then the verse would hit and I'm, okay, I'm easing back into the, where the click is. And when I'm, you know, when I take the click out and I'm listening, it just sounds like, oh, I'm playing drums. And then all of a sudden it just gets sluggish and slows down. It's like, well, that the problem was I was just playing too fast. Yes. In that intro. Yes. And so I was able to learn that just because I'm recording myself. Yes. Um, that's helpful. Performance. Uh, yeah. That, that was a performance thing. So it's interesting. I, um, we've been talking, I've been talking with a friend of mine a lot about this lately as we've been producing a, a couple songs together. And, and I'm explaining to him, I said, you know, the, the feel of this chorus or the feel of this bar has a lot to do with not what's happening right there in this measure, but like what happened before it. Hmm. So if like this guitar part sounds sluggish, you might have been rushing here. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm throwing him under the bus yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in this example. Uh-huh. Um, but keep in mind, yeah, when you isolate this one part, it may sound right on. Yeah. But but in context, what goes on around it is is it gives you this perception of it dragging or rushing yeah. or out of pocket or whatever. So that's to kind of reinforce your point. So you knew that about yourself. You knew that like when I'm going to start this song, I'm going to be hyper. So relax, breathe. Yeah. Just get work, work. This has to be like any be, other thing that I practice. I would shed it. Be mindful about it. Yes. And dig in, mm-hmm. play with intensity, but play, play on the click. Yeah. Sometimes because you're doing a count off through the drum mics, and so of course your voice is going to be quieter. So just man, just yell out the count off so everybody knows yeah. <laughs> that we're starting. You know, yeah. The, a friend of mine, Chris Alloway's, who he was on the the Whitney Duncan gig with me years ago. He complimented me. He's like, with Paul Eckberg, you always know where the beginning of the song is. Cause like I was without being obnoxious. It's like, I'm, I'm yelling out the click and I'm just, you know, Hey, we're going. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, a small thing. It's just like, 
Well, to your point, I played with a country artist. I subbed for a weekend, and I made the mistake of I did a click, yeah, and then I started one. I went one, two, three, four. I made the mistake of hitting my sticks, and then started the one. Wow. Okay. Every not everybody, but half the band came in a beat early, early, because they heard that first click, and we're on a stage yeah and, you know it, it, you, it's pretty far it's apart pretty far apart yeah. you got ears but mm-hmm. at the same time you know you're you're clicking sticks and whatever yeah. and i was like well that was stupid that will hmm. never happen again it just there just needs to be this clear concise yeah. thing sometimes when i count and you want i want to give want to give two bars say there's a pickup yeah. i'm going one two one <laughs> yeah two, that's right like two, this one, is really uh-huh. going to be two bars guys uh-huh. you know because I'll, I'll do a lot of like club gigs where there's no rehearsals. There's yep. no, we're not putting on a show, yeah. but we just need everybody to come in at the same time. But it's those things that you learn. But so yeah, that, you, you know, yeah. sometimes yeah, you, learn, you learn by failing. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, well, I guess I'll never do that again. I, I heard from another, uh, another player um, was telling me one of the things he appreciated about, McHugh was like, as he's counting off, you know, he'll rhythmically give a sense of what the feel of the song is going to be. Yes. Even before, even before the downbeat, he's like, you know, if it's a swing, he's like, one, two, one, two, three, you know, and the, and already you're feeling that. Da, 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 da. I even never heard that st- before I moved to Nashville. It was like, oh, that's brilliant. Like, that's, yeah. instead of just going, okay, one, two, like, let's. So I've copied that. I don't. He may have learned that maybe from Larry London or something. But that's yeah, another thing that I've learned and copied and, and yeah. use. Yeah, not. I mean, because you're establishing the not only establishing when you're going to start, but it's like everybody get your head in the space so that when we hit that first note, yeah, we're making music right. We're away. doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. So our mutual friend Mike Jackson told me about when he was. I think engineering at the church where you guys met and you picked up some brushes or plastics or something like that. And he, and he was like, what's, what's, what's this drummer doing? What's, what's going on with this? And he goes, he was pleasantly surprised at the sounds you were getting out of the drum with whatever you were using, the nonsticks. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. Hmm. That's a thing, and I think it gets overlooked. And so when you're recording, yeah, and, okay, this song, we're going to use broomsticks. We're going to use, I'm going to use a brush in one hand. I'm going to use this other thing in the other hand. How has that evolved in a way that works really well when recording? That's, that's, that's a nice compliment to hear um, from Mike. I think you just kind of learn as you go. It's it's not about really being perfect. Like for instance, um, like with Michael Card, he was going to record a live concert video and he was going to use Ken Lewis, but he wasn't available. And so, you know, I guess it's down to me. And I'm not reluctantly, per- <laughs> reluctantly. I just want to let you know you weren't first call. He, uh, no, he didn't say that. And, and so there I am and I'm, I'm using this acoustic kit and 
and I'm using congas and sometimes playing those. I haven't been trained how to use the conga. Yeah. I, I, I took one lesson and as this video is approaching, as this, you know, this, this concert video is approaching and I feel scared. It's like I'm going into this and I'm not you know, properly trained to use congas. And I call Ken and he goes, man, it's like, I just find things and I hit them until they sound good. Mm -hmm. And that really freed me up to just be creative with what I have. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, schooling can be great and you can learn a lot and you can improve by that. But you can, you can also do okay just by, man, hitting things with skill. You know, just just hit things until they sound good. Like that was so freeing. It's like, oh great, I get to go in and I guess I'll play and I, and I know if I hit a conga this way, if it's tuned this way, if I hit it with this part of my hand, I can mm -hmm. make it sound cool. Yeah. I don't think I'm answering your question at all, but no, I'm no, just I, jumping I, out. I think off. I think uh, uh, what yeah. I'm hearing you say is like, use your ears, find it. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's it's great you took lessons and i think there's there's definitely uh a lot of opportunity to grow from those types of things in a, in a very fast way but yeah. really you can be your own teacher yeah and listening and it even goes back to when you were first recording mm -hmm. and playing and practicing to the click and mm -hmm. going back and listening and that that is can be a really difficult thing but necessary the amount of growth in a short amount of time is amazing when yeah. you are listening to yourself and being like, whoa, that's what I do. Yeah. That's what, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help. Like uh, I've learned a lot just by watching, you know, engineers, mm -hmm. you know, and I'll ask, you know, if they have the patience for it, I'll ask questions and I'll, and, and just try to retain that knowledge of like, and how can I apply that? If I'm going to engineer my own drums, you know, for, a session for, you know, for an email session. Um, what I love to do is call in people like my buddy, Evan Redwine, who's here today and pay him to get great sounds. Yeah. And I do get great sounds when I call him and, uh, it's worth it, man. Like it's every, every session that I've been on where there's a dedicated engineer, it's just, it sounds so wonderful. I think about um, doing sessions with um, a producer friend named Mitch Dane uh, mm -hmm. over at Sputnik, where you've been. He uh, he gets great sounds, and just the way he uses compression and my mix, my monitor mix, like when I'm playing, it's it's it sounds like an album. You know, it sounds like you're listening to the finished mix and that's inspiring man yes like just to have that talent carving sounds it just in, it inspires you to play better and then just being in a place like sputnik where it's like you're with a full band you know you got a bass player there and a guitar and mm -hmm. you know maybe someone's also playing acoustic somewhere else and it's that's what's that's what can be really inspiring when you just have people who are dedicated audio engineers who can 
if there's a budget for that, you know? Well, that's the thing. I mean, there, there isn't always that, but what you've introduced is this idea of ask for help. Yeah. And it could almost be a form of, dare we say, networking in the sense that sure. you're kind of like working together. Mm-hmm. How can you pull from each other as, uh, as, as a resource, but also mm-hmm. like learning from each other. And, and it's like spending that time together, working together and, it's like you're learning something, they're learning something, we're all hmm. kind of working together mutually. And Maybe they aren't learning something, you know. Well, I mean, there, there's some people that like who maybe they're so busy or they just don't want – they just may not have time for you and you might get a no. And that's okay. Sure. But it's just like, you know, just keep asking and maybe somebody is, you know, will be generous enough that like, yeah, I'll, I'll help. But I think what what I want to get across to anybody that's listening to this that may be apprehensive about reaching out to mm. a peer, yeah. And I tell my son this all the time. In the almost nine years that I've been doing this podcast, I have been over and over again pleasantly surprised at the reaction I get from people and say, "Would you donate some of your time and energy and yeah. insight?" to my podcast hmm. and 99% of the time people are like, yes, I, that'd be great. That's now, great. I mean, you know, they may have something to promote or whatever, but it's like the chance to share knowledge to, to, to grow within the community. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's there. It's yeah. there for, for the picking. And so my friend, uh, my good friend, Andrew Osenga, like he's my neighbor. Yeah. He, um, He's he's done a number of things. Like he was he was in the band The Normals. Hmm. Um, he was, and then he was uh, a hired guy in another band. Um, and he did his own solo career. You know, he, then he was like staff songwriter. He's been a label guy. Done a number of things. And kind of when I moved into his neighborhood here, and uh, he would. Uh, we became good friends, and then he started hiring me to play drums on because he was producing a lot of independent artists, and he became a better producer, and I became a better drummer. We kind of did that together. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. We kind of joined forces, and that, uh, and I've seen that happen a lot in Nashville, where you know you got two people working, you know, they know each other and they're friends, and they kind of start working together, and the next thing you know, it's like. They're winning the Grammy for best, you know, album right, of the right, year or right, something right. like that. Like, oh, that's amazing. And they're, they're just using people that they kind of came up with. Often. So it, it almost is, I, I see what you're saying is it's not like you have to go to somebody that is at the peak of their yeah. game, yeah. but it's like, hey, I want to get into this and mm-hmm. I know you're interested in some of this and maybe we can pull our resources yeah. together. Yeah. That's that's like great, that. and then and then especially if you're friends and you can work together and you know fight through some of those uh-huh. yeah experiences. Well, let me ask you about because again we we met at Sputnik Sound, which is an amazing studio, yeah. and I know you've worked there pretty regularly. Yeah, and and there are other producers that you're talking about and different people that you work with. So I mean. I guess the question is, I don't know if you can answer this, or maybe we have throughout the course of this mm-hmm. conversation, is how do you become like a regular hmm. call yeah. for this studio, this engineer, this producer? It's, I mean, it's really up 
it's really out of your hands, you know. Okay. It's really kind of out of your control. But you can, you can, you know, there are ways to be dependable. Um, just be a great player, be a great hang. Um, you know, Mitch was the one who said, it's like, Paul, you really listen to artists, you know, when they're here at Sputnik. And uh, I mean, Mitch is a very kind person too. The way he works with artists is that, that inspires me because he's, he cares about the person, he cares about the music and he's able to, you know, they bring in a song, he's able to, you know, uh, edit and um, change, you know, a lyric here or there, or change the music and kind of form it even before the band gets there to add their part. But man, it's it's really out of your control. And you just have to be really just be really kind and and know how to you know, know how to read the room. I've heard that up plenty on your podcast. <laughs> um Yeah, man, it's 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 about it's about being nice to people. I was thinking on the road it was somewhere playing for some artist sometime <laughs> and we're we're setting up the stage loaded in and there's a local hand who's helping me set up my drums and he goes hey man it's like you know man i have this drum set it's a ludwig it has different colors and i go yeah was it was it like a what do they call that a jelly bean kit yeah right and uh, his eyes light up. It's like, yeah, man. He's, he starts telling me more about it in depth, and, and I'm excited listening to him. We're just talking shop, and we finish setting up the stage, and we're going back to the dressing room, you know, with the artist and the, some of the other players. And one of the players is, you know, kind of mocking that, you know, local hand who's helping us, like, oh yeah, play drums. I'm like, guys, cut it out, man. It's like he's just. He's just being nice. He's being friendly. He's finding some joy in connecting with another drummer and talking about drums. Like mm-hmm. maybe he doesn't get that often in that city. And mm-hmm. man, I just want to, you know, I didn't shame that player who was kind of mocking him, but man, it's just, just to treat people with dignity, I think goes a long way, even though it's like, I'm not going to get anything out of this relationship or friendship. I might get a happy feeling or something, but man, just to, um, just to practice kindness, I think has brought me a lot, a long way in, in being um, dependable, being trustworthy. It's like, I'm not really a partier, you know, like, um, I think maybe that has gotten me some gigs where there's an artist who, I don't know, doesn't need to be around that. And so maybe I'll get the call. I don't know. I'm guessing here. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean, I, I love that. I mean, like, just practicing kindness, like, all the time so that, like, it, it just, it just, it just comes naturally. It just kind of is who you are. You would hope it you, does, I mean. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> I mean, I know how, like, I, I think at my core, it's like, there's a lot of things about me where, like, you know, I'm selfish, and, man, I, like, I'm greedy, and... I mean, you just go through the list of the seven deadly sins. It's like, yep, 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 yep. It's like really at my core. And at the same time, there's also a pull 
you know, in me that's, I, I guess because I'm made in the image of God, it's like, man, I just really want to treat everyone with some type of love, you know? Right. I don't know. I'm getting philosophical here. No, it's cool. I, I, I have two questions, two more questions for you. Sure. And I've asked this with a, a couple players uh, recently that I, I know this is true for them, but how has, how has your faith journey informed you in the decisions you make wow. within the music industry? Who you play for, how you approach life, how you approach you know this whole thing? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I I was I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about this, but you know I want to give the impression that I'm so busy that you know I don't have time for anything else. But um, I think for the past like 15 or so years, someone, um, uh, have you heard about Young Life? Young Life? Yeah, it's like a, it's a, it's a, a it's not like a church, it's a parachurch organization, it's kind of uh, like youth ministry uh-huh. that, you know, reaches out uh, to kids who maybe normally wouldn't find themselves in church. Okay. Um, and they have a bunch of cool camp properties around you know the nation around the world really and i know a lot of people who are on staff i mean in like chicago or colorado kansas city and um a friend of mine had had invited me up years ago um to just volunteer like three or four weeks of my summer just just helping out just volunteering and i loved it you're working with like junior high kids and high school kids and college kids. And you're giving these campers who come every week, you know, trying to give them the best week of their lives. Yeah. Anyway, um, I kept every summer, I kept getting calls, you know, from different staff members saying like, Hey, would you be willing to volunteer? It's like, we need a drummer for large group. You know, it's like, well, I can do that. And like, well, we need someone also who will help these college kids who are running audio it's like would you kind of you're multi-talented it's like you can kind of give advice and yeah. if something breaks too maybe you can troubleshoot that you can maybe you know share your story in front of the campers because you know it's like i have a, a real broken history and 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 there's hope along with that and basically you know just you're you know talking about you know to these campers just about the love of jesus and and it's great but I have had so summer's a big time, a touring time. Yeah. In in music. And so there have been some times where I've had to like sub out a gig that I've been on, which is a risk, you know. Right. You're self employed because sometimes you're working, sometimes you're not. If you sub out a gig, there's a chance that they might like your sub better than you. Yeah. And um and, Which is okay, yeah. But then it could turn into the second half of that is it could turn into losing the gig. Exactly. But and I th- and I know there's been I think a couple times where I've you know I've subbed out a gig because I went to volunteer at you know a young life camp for three or four weeks and I've lost the gig. Hmm. And 
it uh how do you feel about that um really sad it's it was such a bummer because like um both you know i've had three gigs i think i've lost it was just really sad because like i liked working with that artist and that group but uh I had some I had some really profound experiences just you know serving these kids at camp you know having having deep talks you know cuz like they'll ask questions like what you know, what was it like for you in high school or whatever yeah and so, sometimes it's just listening and not a lot of <laughs> not a lot of advice giving it's just listening and I remember uh, man playing for uh, this girl who won The Voice on NBC, mm-hmm. Danielle Bradbury. Yeah. Uh, she had just started, I say girl, because she was like 15 years old when she started, you know, on the, <laughs> yeah. on the program, I think. And, and then she had a song that hit. And so Brad Paisley brought her out on tour. Mm-hmm. And we're, so we're playing arenas. Yeah. And like 13-year-old Paul is like, oh my gosh, this is what I always dreamed of, you know, mm-hmm. when I'm playing in the basement is playing in an arena and everybody's cheering for you. Well, they're cheering for her, but <laughs> I'm getting the residual applause, you know? <laughs> and and I remember, you know, uh, the, before our set, you know, one night the lights were going, the lights went out, you know, I'm walking across the stage and the, everybody in the, arena, in the arena are cheering and yelling, screaming. And I thought to myself, it's like, is there anything that gets better than this? Um, sorry, I'm getting a little choked up here. Uh, I immediately, something came to mind was, um, I'm sorry, I'm getting a little emotional it's here. Okay. I'm sitting on uh, this bluff next to a lake, um, next to, oh, I didn't expect this, sitting next to uh, this high school kid who was sharing about how he lost um, his mom uh, to cancer. Mm-hmm. And be, and he had started sharing that because I lost my mom to cancer when I was 12 years old. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he's just starting to kind of talk about the last seven years of his life and just unpacking that in front of me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, Man, that—that's mm-hmm. better yeah. than you know, getting applause and you know, playing drums. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's it's shifted my priorities, man. It's turned things upside down because I I should be you know I should be making money and I do, but then like I can be shooting myself in the foot for like going off and volunteering. And I like, I, I, mm-hmm. I've never wanted to talk about this before because, you know, I, I have the perception of that uh, people in the industry want to hire people that are already busy, that are, that are so busy that, you know, that they, they they barely have time for you because you know maybe the perception is well if this person isn't working they must not be very good and that's not true right you know? 
There right. are like plenty of talented people that aren't working as much. But I, I sometimes I perceive that people want to call the busy people because they oh they must be good because they're working a lot. Yeah, and a lot of them are good. So it's yeah, uh, Jesus has really flipped things upside down for me, and and I'll just although. So, you know, I'll, I'll say no sometimes to, you know, I have, when, when I was touring a lot, I said no to some summer dates, but I realized it's also a luxury to say no, because not everybody can say no. The power of no. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm a, here I am a single guy with no kids. So my overhead is very low. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not putting th- kids through college. Kids, I see your snare drum collection. Yeah. <laughs> my kids. <laughs> and my overhead is very low, man. It's like I so I have the luxury sometimes of saying no and and saying yes to an opportunity to take a month, I think, uh, though, my summer out. I think everybody, though, the power of no is important for everybody regardless mm. of where you are because of, because everyone's priorities are different. Yeah. Mine are a little bit different than yours, but I have had to learn to say no you know, but uh, there's a price that has to be paid, maybe with saying no. Yeah, yeah, for but, sure. But also, there's a price to be paid if you say yes too. Exactly. Exactly. Like, well, maybe it's yeah. Maybe it's going to be. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's a price that you don't want to pay that when you say yes. Yeah. Right. Or yeah. Discover in hindsight. Man, I thank you for sharing that. That's, yeah, that's a, what that's an amazing story, and I Thanks. and I feel like it ties in so well with what we've we're talking about before, hmm. and that um, prioritizing things in life beyond music, beyond mm-hmm. these things, um, uh, and the people that you want to work with and the people that you want to surround yourself with uh, are those that recognize that in you as a human being. Yeah. You know, and I feel like it just, it, it just one thing feeds into another and just reinforces those really good decisions yeah. that are made. I, uh, <laughs> when I was touring a lot and I would come home after a weekend away, it kind of reminded me of what I heard about this little town in Florida. I think it's an unincorporated area or something called Gibsonton, Florida. It's outside Tampa. Where, let me look at my notes. It was like a popular winter home for a bunch of carnival performers and sideshow acts <laughs> okay <laughs> you know because we're kind of in the off season you know you, yeah you got giants and little people uh performers that went by names like you know the bearded lady yeah uh, lobster boy uh priscilla the monkey girl okay <laughs> but anyway that little town of florida was like home to all these performers and you know they said like everybody fit in people came here because they weren't looked at or talked about or asked questions uh-huh and I kind of think of Nashville sometimes that same way that <laughs> here we are. It's like, we have yes. these odd people who are self-employed <laughs> who they don't, you know, they yeah. don't give a service, you know, like they're not, 
stocking shelves at the grocery store or being cashiers, and they're not in a factory making things. They're creating music, which uh-huh. is so kind of nebulous, and it's like music isn't practical, and it's, it's such yeah. an odd group of people. But it feels less odd and less alone yeah. when on a Monday at lunch you go into Baja Burrito and you see all the other people who have who have come home for them from their weekend run or are between sessions at Berry Hill. Maybe feel a lot less alone, kind of in those days of touring. Like, oh, you know, all the circus folk are <laughs> are back in town. You ever feel that way? Um, <laughs> Well, when I was thinking about moving here, my friend Eric Fritsch was like, you need to come down to Nashville because they will treat you like a normal person yeah, and that you have a real job playing music. Not like here in Columbus where it's like, okay, this is sweet. When are you going to get a real job? Um, and yeah, it's true. Um, and I think, I think when my wife says, yeah, he's a musician, people are like, oh, cool. Uh, but when you're outside Nashville, people are always like, who do you play for? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, gosh, how do you answer that? Yeah. Anybody and, who calls. Yeah. And like, what? That's not the answer I'm looking for. <laughs> you know, Just pick a, pick a big name or pick a, or just make up a name. I know. Do you know Aerosmith? Yeah. They're awesome. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You got to. Uh, yeah. I, I. I threw that in there at the end. I mean, you, you can you can uh, edit this podcast to, and on more of a, uh, you know, on more of a beautiful, thoughtful note, because that was a thoughtful question about like how your faith kind of informs your work and all that. But I mean, you can you can cut out. And I, I just I just thought about that 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 circus folk kind of. I love it. I that, that I, story. I, you can put that. Hopefully, you can edit that and put that in, in anywhere. But I uh, I appreciate this, man. I um, it's again. We've talked about it for a long time, and it, it almost. Uh, Part of me feels a little sad that it's like now we've 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 we finally met, we've finally done it, and finally had it. the interview. But um, and what but a letdown I am! No, no, no. <laughs> but at, but at the same time, uh, I I feel like we've we've covered a lot of ground, and yet there's a there's a been a strong cohesive message here across hmm. the board um, that I feel like is really important. And there's a lot of things that we've talked about that have not been discussed and it and it continues to inspire Zach and I to keep this journey going because yeah. there's always things to talk about. There's always new things to discover about what we do and who's doing it. Um, and this is no exception. So I, mm. I appreciate your time. Um, I Thanks, love man. the fu- discover that you're kind of in my neighborhood too yeah. and the chance to like reconnect mm-hmm. and whatever and, and learn more from what you're doing is like, well, that's even better. So I'm thankful. I, uh, yeah. I kind of wish maybe I, I could have held out and, and been like podcast number 500, but <laughs> we got to reserve that for somebody or something. We're done at 499. No, <laughs> <laughs> you, should, you should just, you know, we're just going to stop. Yeah, yeah, 499. Sorry, sorry. Paul, Paul's that's available. It. That's it. It's a sign. We're done. I'm, <laughs> I'm really, uh, yeah, I'm really honored that you considered interviewing me and and a, yeah, it's been great, dude. I appreciate it, man. It's a long time coming, but yeah. thanks so much for stopping by, man. Thank you. Yeah. I'm going to do that, that handshake. <laughs> Sweet. I appreciate you, man. Yeah, man. Same here. Thanks. Thanks, Evan. Oh, yeah, you are. <laughs> he is still there. <laughs> I thought I heard him snoring there for a second. <laughs> Five years. I did, I did Good. <laughs>
Is that is that what's that code for napping? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it, my conversation with Paul Eckberg. I so appreciate Paul for being candid and open with us about all these things and experiences here in his time in Nashville. I hope that uh, some of you all can relate to this and have some strong takeaways as I did hanging with Paul. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview with Las Vegas-based drummer and percussionist Pepe Jimenez. He just finished up a thing with Lady Gaga and plays with the Raiders band and other stuff around Las Vegas. So make sure you check that out. But for now, everyone, thanks so much for listening, and I hope to see you around. Bye-bye.